Um, good afternoon. My name is Michelle Langstone, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Word Festival and to this session, AJ Finn, The Woman in the Window. This conversation is made possible with the support of the Embassy of the United States of America and HarperCollins. There will, of course, be an opportunity to ask questions at the end of the session with roving mics available. So please make yourselves known to our volunteers if you have something that you would like to ask. <clears throat> it's difficult to know how to introduce an author writing under a pseudonym. <laughs> uh, it sort of warrants two introductions. On the one hand, there is AJ Finn, author of the number one international best-selling debut novel, The Woman in the Window, a crime thriller noir homage that has broken records with its publishing deals and is currently being made into a film with a cast headlined by Amy Adams. It's a book that has been widely praised by critics and authors alike. Stephen King pronounced it unputdownable. Mm. I'm still not sure that's a word. It's not. Um, and Gillian Flynn, who is a darling of the crime thriller genre, has been its champion. It's a pen name that gives no clues to gender nor to identity. It's a voice emerging from the dark and then disappearing again. And then on the other hand, there is the architect of both creations, Daniel Mallory, a New York native, a former book publisher with a penchant for Hitchcock, mm -hmm. and evidently his own privacy. Um, <laughs> so please join me in welcoming to the Word Festival both the myth and the man, A.J. Finn. <laughs> we can't really go anywhere without talking about the pseudonym first, can no, we? No, Because it's... Um, it's right there. It's right it's there. It's on the cover. <laughs> so I worked in publishing, as mm. you mentioned, for 10 years. And by the time I submitted this book, I was still employed in that industry. So when it came time to submit it to other publishers, I did not wish to use my real name. Odds were excellent that publishers in the UK and or the US, the two markets in which I'd worked, would know me or know of me. And I didn't want anyone to say, well, we know Dan, we like him, let's buy his book. Or more likely, we don't like Dan, let's not buy his book. <laughs> So I decided to use a pseudonym. There were two other considerations. The first was that I did not intend to leave my job, and mm. indeed I didn't leave my job for another 15 months. I was concerned that my authors, the authors whom I published, would find it disconcerting to wander into a bookshop and see their editor's name writ large across a book. <laughs> of course, now I left my job because I got rich. So, uh, <laughs> so fuck them is what I say. <laughs> And the third consideration is that, as you mentioned, I'm actually quite intensely private, and I did not and do not wish to see my real name everywhere. But it's, it's no secret. If you Google me, my stubbly mug is all over the internet. Do you know if any of the writers that you published were offended by your book or success? I do. <laughs> Excellent. I, I do know this, and um, I'm going to change names to protect the guilty. But in this instance, I was in Chicago for an interview much like this one. And the interviewer, looking somewhat abashed, said to me in the middle of the talk, I've got a question from a former author of yours. Let's call her Sally. And I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> Sally had stopped talking to me as soon as I sold my book, which was awkward because I was her editor. <laughs> so we'd gone over 15 months without her speaking to me. And uh, the interviewer, looking uncomfortable, said, Sally has contacted me with this question. I'm going to recite it for you because these words are hers. She said, and I quote, I committed this to memory. For hundreds of years, female writers have used gender-neutral pseudonyms 
to hide their sex and so make money as writers. Don't you think it's grossly exploitative of you to hide your white penis behind a female pseudonym and so deceive readers? And I was quite stunned by this. And I remember I recovered by saying, gosh, we're talking about my penis a lot sooner than I thought we would. <laughs> also, how does she know it's white? <laughs> so I explained what I've explained to you just now, yeah. why I elected to use a pseudonym. But inwardly, I seethed. I thought, fuck off. It, this is my event, and my success does not in any way diminish yours, Sally. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, hope, I wonder if that got back to her at all. I'd, I'd like to think so, yep. I mean, to me, it is a gender-neutral nom de plume. Absolutely. Uh, members of my family thought that you were a woman. Uh, people who uh, know me think uh, that, but yes. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean... Did you want it to appear gender neutral? Because you're writing from the point of view of a woman. Your, your central narrator is a woman. She is. No. Is it, mm. It's helpful for people to think that you are? Do you know, I, I wish I were that uh, calculating, I suppose. I'm not. No. We, we, we chose a gender neutral pseudonym because my agent mentioned in her letter to editors that I worked in the publishing industry. And there are about eight men working in the publishing industry. So if I'd chosen Bruce Finn, they would have rumbled me pretty quickly. <laughs> At the time that editors indicated they would be making offers, but before they could plunk down any cold, hard cash, I outed myself to them. I thought it only fair that they should know what they'd be getting into, because I'm a nightmare. <laughs> and that's when the secret was circulated. So it's, it's not been confidential beyond the initial 48 hours of submission. So it was never your intention to remain anonymous no, forever? No, not at all, not at all. But when I buy a novel, I'm not particularly interested in the author's biography. I never read that on the back flap. I'm buying their fiction, not their memoir. Mm. So I prefer for readers not to know much about me, at least at the point of purchase. If they care to Google me, they're welcome to it. There's an argument of that in film as well, isn't there, that within the kind of star system and, you know, back in the day, especially in the 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. um, no one knew anything about those actors and they could just morph into whoever and people were lost in the story and not in the life behind it. I think that's an excellent comparison. And it's, it's the case, for me at least, that the actors whom I find most consistently successful are those about whom I know the least. I don't know much about Meryl Streep or Edward Norton or Amy Adams, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. You, am I right in thinking that you published Robert Galbraith? I did. I, this, is, this is, of course... J.K. Rowling's J.K. Rowling. Bloom so that she could write crime crime fiction. Yes, this novel was submitted to me when I was a publisher in the UK. I remember reading it and thinking, this is excellent. And we were not too keen to purchase it, despite its quality, because private eye novels generally don't sell in the UK. Yeah, right. But I recommended that we did, and uh, surprise. <laughs> secrets, secrets around identity do not, are not kept well. In they really are. Well, there's no point they? in the digital no, age. No, Um being an editor mm -hmm. of crime fiction for as long as you were mm -hmm. in both Great Britain and in New York, do you feel that when the time came for you to write your book, you had an advantage of an innate understanding of formula or structure? Do you feel like, did you feel that you stole a little bit from your industry to write your book? That's quite an allegation. No, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> okay, go, and okay, it's, it's a fair question, and it's, uh, it's one to which I would answer with a qualified yes. I spent, as I said, 10 years in the industry. The great advantage conferred upon me or imputed to me by that experience was the opportunity to have read as much as I did. Mm -hmm. Certainly editing other authors' work 
helped me understand structure, as you say, the architecture of a thriller. But it's really the opportunity to have read so much in my life as a kid, growing up gorging myself on Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes, as a teenager having discovered Ruth Rendell and Patricia Highsmith, then as a PhD student at Oxford, where I wrote about Highsmith, mm. and finally as a crime thriller editor. So this, this lifetime of reading, this life of crime, was what primed me to write a book of my own. But you're absolutely right to suggest that my experience as an editor also contributed to that. Did you suspect that you might always want to be a writer? Was it humming away underneath as you were editing, or was it to take you by surprise? It took me rather by surprise. It occurred to me as a young editor in my 20s that I might write a book one day, because I think lots of young editors in their 20s want to write books. But for a long time, the market was dominated by serial killer thrillers by the likes of James Patterson and <clears throat> Patricia Cornwell, probably since at latest 1988 when Thomas Harris published The Silence of the Lambs. And I had researched Patricia Highsmith, who was an early pioneer of what we now call psychological suspense. Mm -hmm. There was no market appetite for that, so I assumed no one would be interested in a story. Then in 2012, Gillian Flynn published Gone Girl, which inducted this mass global readership into that genre, psychological suspense, and I thought, aha, now is the moment to strike. The trouble was, I didn't have a story. And over the course of my publishing career, I'd learned to detect it when an author was writing a copycat novel. For example, after Fifty Shades of Grey, became hugely and unaccountably popular. <laughs> I was flooded with erotic novel submissions, and oftentimes I would you know, cringe as I read them and think, you didn't really want to write this. This is a smash and grab. You're cashing out. And there's nothing automatically disqualifying about such books or such efforts. I published a lot of them. I just didn't want to slap my name on something inorganic. Mm -hmm. And I, I recognize I did not slap my name on anything. I slapped someone else's name on my book. So years went by. The Girl on the Train was published, mm -hmm. stoked the fire, the bonfire of this interest in psychological suspense. Again, I thought, ooh, I wish I had a story, but I didn't. And it wasn't until a year later that this story took, took root and took shape in my mind. Can you talk about, about how that idea came about? Yes, absolutely. So it was a confluence of two occurrences. The first and more significant one for me personally was that in the summer of 2015, on my birthday, I found myself in the office of a Russian psychiatrist in New York, as one does. This is a, it's a quaint New York custom. And I'd consulted him because since age 21, and this was my 36th birthday, I had suffered from very severe depression, during which time I resorted to pretty much every treatment imaginable, from medication to meditation, from hypnotherapy to ketamine therapy, and nothing had proved lastingly fruitful. So I wanted to switch medications, consulted this fellow. He grilled me for about 90 minutes and then said, look, I don't think you suffer from depression. I think you've got bipolar disorder. And I said, you know, I've seen Homeland. <laughs> and I've never gone full Claire Dane. And he said, no, I think you've got bipolar 2, which is a variant where the lows are lower and more enduring and so commonly mistaken for depression, whereas the highs are not as dizzying or as manic. And so he prescribed a course of electroconvulsive therapy and also new medication. And within about six weeks, I felt almost altogether restored, totally transformed. So I was in a place where I could pursue some sort of creative venture or mm. enterprise. And by pure coincidence, one night, about six weeks after this, I was parked on my sofa in Manhattan watching Rear Window, one of my favorite films. And I clocked a light in my peripheral vision. It was my neighbor across the street switching on her living room lamp. And so in accordance with fine New York City custom, I spied on her. <laughs> and she wasn't doing anything particularly interesting. She was a woman in her 40s, standing in the light shed by her floor lamp, 
aiming a remote at her TV whilst dressed in a bathrobe. And something about the scene struck me as quite profoundly sad. I wondered what this woman, this young woman, was doing indoors on an August evening. Never mind that I myself was indoors on an August evening. And just like that, this character sort of strode into my brain, lugging her story behind her. I wondered what had confined her to her home. I thought, mm, maybe agoraphobia. And certainly, in my darkest days, I'd struggled to prize myself out of bed, let alone leave the house. I asked myself, what would I do in her position? I'd probably watch old movies. I might turn to drink. I'd certainly spy on my neighbors. And so this narrative sloshed around in my head for about 48 hours and emerged more or less intact after that. Wow. Yep. That's fast. You know, I, I, it, it is quick. And I had anticipated or would have anticipated, had you asked me back in the day, that the storytelling would prove challenging because mm. I'd never written fiction, whereas the sentence-level structure, the composition, the writing would probably come quite easily because I'd written so much, dissertations, copies. It was the other way around, actually. Incidentally, I still have not introduced myself to this woman. I probably owe her royalties. So. <laughs> Does... Does the character of Anna Fox then, she sits quite close to you? She does, yes. Yep. Do you think that's what enabled you to write her so swiftly? Could you feel, could you hear her, was it that you could hear her voice or feel her movement or both? Or like what's the textural kind of chewy part of that as a writer? How did you bring her into your own body and then onto the page? I How love that question. Certainly I, I could hear and I, I hope to have channeled her voice. Yeah. What I like about this character, and I do like this character, although she frustrates me, and I know she frustrates some readers, is that, and here I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. No, do, please. So often in this genre, as, as you will know, female characters, even and especially those in leading roles, are reactive or passive. They predicate their emotional welfare on men. They obsess over men. They wait to be rescued by men. And this is not like most women I know. Mm -hmm. Most women I know can outwit the men in their lives. They can manage the men. My mother is here. Mom? <laughs> you could beat the shit out of dad, couldn't you? <laughs> but you wouldn't know it having read a lot of these novels. Mm. I sought to create a female character who was not a damsel in distress. She's a mess, but a mess of her own making. Over the course of this book, she identifies an inquiry, pursues an investigation, tests her limits, all without the help of a man, or indeed without the help of anyone. I like her because she's smart. I think she's kind of funny. She's generous, as many therapists, and the character is a, a former child psychologist, mm -hmm. as many therapists are, she seeks to help people within her limited means. So I could, I could, to revert to your question, hear her voice. Her movements proved more challenging because I'd never been properly agoraphobic. And one of the challenges in writing this novel was to determine what her actual movements within the house would be and how that would influence her emotional or psychological movements. Mm. To, I find her an incredibly brave character. Oh, good, good. And I wanted to ask you, you know, from a mental health point of view, because you are very open talking about your journey with that. Yes. How much in the back of your mind as you wrote this, was it about presenting a, a flawed character, um, an unreliable narrator to the audience who was also brave and lucid and suffering from mental health problems? How, how much is that simmering away underneath as giving a voice to those people in an identity that allows them credibility and 
empathy from your from readers toward those kinds of conditions? Quite do you know vitally, what I, mean? I do. I I, no, that's really yeah. well put, actually. And I think it was quite vitally important for me to demonstrate that a character stricken with mental health issues could still contribute or attempt to contribute yeah. usefully to society. I know that in New Zealand there is an initiative to encourage more discussion of, not to say debate about, mental health, mm -hmm. which is commendable. It is under-discussed globally. Mm. It certainly is the case in the United States. I did not anticipate that this book would find a publisher, let alone connect with millions of readers, as I'm fortunate enough to have seen it do. But I realize now that I'm impossibly privileged to have a platform from which to speak. I am able to present myself to others who have struggled or are struggling with mental health issues or who care about those who do, and say, look, I came out fine. I'm doing okay. Just because you are depressed or anxious or what have you does not mean you're defective. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just one aspect and not remotely the most interesting or significant aspect of you. Mm, absolutely. Do you feel a burden of any pressure at all to be a spokesperson in that way for mental health? I don't. I, I do consider it... That's not true. The burden is in maintaining my privacy, and there are certain aspects of my life, including my mental health struggles, which I'm happy to talk about. Mm. There are other aspects I prefer to keep to myself. Mm. Nothing criminal, I hasten to add, just... <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, I do consider it a real privilege, as I said, to, to, to have this pulpit, as it were. You mentioned um, in talking about developing the character um, and where this story came from, Rear window, mm -hmm. um, and the banality you described as seeing your neighbour in her bathrobe just watching the television is so much so an amazing banal. part yeah. of Hitchcock and of you know peeking into the lives of all of those people. Yes, um, it's impossible to talk to you about the woman in the window without talking to you about your love for Hitchcock because it's the whole book is such a love letter um, seeded in Hitchcock and all of his extraordinary um, plans and psychology. Can you talk about um, how you fell in love with him in, in, in film noir? Yes, and I'm so glad you feel that way. Thanks a lot. When I was uh, nine years old, I had a formative experience. My, my mother and my father went shopping at a mall in New York and for want of a babysitter, elected to drop me off at a local cinema. <laughs> Very nurturing. <laughs> and my mother said, find something to watch. And there were only two screens at this cinema. One of them was featuring The Vanishing, a Dutch-French picture widely acclaimed as one of the 20th century's most terrifying psychological thrillers. <laughs> and the other screen was out of order. So, <laughs> so I spent two hours watching this psychodrama unfold. Has anyone seen The Vanishing? It's horrifying. But there's no bloodshed in it. And I think had I seen a drop of the red stuff, for which I have a very limited capacity, I would have been out of there. There was none. So I watched it to the bitter, and it is a very bitter end. Stanley Kubrick described it as the scariest film he'd ever seen. It is horrifying. Years later, after much therapy, <laughs> we were living down the block from an art house cinema, and every weekend, the managers of this cinema would host film noir retrospectives and classic movie nights and Hitchcock marathons, and I steeped myself in all of it. I remember having a second formative experience one night when I was 16. I watched the Wes Craven horror film Scream, which is, I think, as slasher <clears throat> films go, pretty skillful. Yeah. In the opening sequence, as you might recall, Drew Barrymore's character is literally butchered. Her viscera are exposed. It's disgusting. I watched it through, through my fingers. I wasn't frightened. I was just repulsed. And the next night, for the first time, I watched Psycho. And there is 
Almost no explicit violence in Psycho, not even in the infamous 52-shot shower sequence. Mm -hmm. We never see a blade puncture flesh. And yet I was scared witless. And I think what Hitchcock and his peers understood was that the mind is a much darker and more dramatic playground for our fears than anything they could project onto the screen. Mm. And so in writing The Woman in the Window, I sought to evoke that same restraint. I wanted to affirm the value and impact of suggestion. There's not much explicit content in this novel. No, there isn't, but there's Mm. a ratchet load of tension. Good. That's excellent. It's an incredibly filmic Mm -hmm. novel. Um, it reads like a film manuscript in many ways because it is so sort of visually, it, it's so tight. Mm-hmm. In the absence of, you know, Hitchcock is so well known for his screeching, horrifying soundtracks. Like mm-hmm. the scores make my palms even now go sweaty. They're so stressful. Those shrilling violins, yes. How do you replace a soundtrack to create tension in your book? Because it doesn't let go. It's so taut. How did you achieve that? So a soundtrack serves the function of providing an oral atmosphere. Yeah. And I suppose the nearest analog in a book would be straight up scenic atmosphere. Mm. The house, as you know, is, is quite gothic. The character, I should, I should it summarize. Is, it is a yeah. character. The house is the a house character. The house is a character, is absolutely. Yeah. So our, our narrator, once a respected child psychologist, is now stricken with agoraphobia. She cannot set foot outside her Harlem townhouse, and this proves problematic when one night she witnesses or believes she witnesses the murder of a neighbor, but she can't persuade anyone, including the police, to believe her, and soon she starts to doubt whether she saw anything at all. I staged the action in this lavish mansion because I recognized that we were going to be spending virtually the entirety of the novel in it, and I live in a tiny one-bedroom in Manhattan. I would go berserk. I do go berserk after like 45 minutes in my apartment, <laughs> let alone six weeks over, which, over the course of which the novel takes place. So I, I suppose atmosphere contributes significantly to the feeling of tension. There's something spooky about this house. It's mm. almost Havisham-ish. And half of it's in shadow half the time. That's exactly right, yes. It's so interesting to me that you um, quote the um, Lady of Shalott poem, that I am half sick of shadows, yes. and, you know, um, at the point where Anna Fox has a really interesting dalliance with another yep. character, um, because there's so much of that sort of duality in your book, isn't there? It's the light and the shade and what's obscured, what you can see, what you can't see. The world is limited to Anna's point of view and her focus. And you can only see what she allows you to see, what you allow the audience to see, which is in itself very claustrophobic, isn't it? Will you please do my interviews going forward? (laughs) (laughs) You are so good at this. Yes, the novel is concerned with the dynamics between light and dark, and particularly the gray areas in between. Mm. Anna, as I mentioned earlier, is a frustrating character. She's flawed. She ain't perfect. Whereas women in suspense novels certainly seem to be pretty virtuous. Film noir was quite vexed after the war. Women had entered the workforce. Prior to the war, female characters in noir were divided into the Madonna whore category. And then they were empowered via employment and liberated, as it were. And so noir after 45 declined. I think that's what marked its descent. Mm. Filmmakers didn't know how to portray women who were neither wholly good nor wholly bad. And this is a point that Gillian Flynn has made over and over in her fiction. Women characters don't need to be wholly good or wholly bad. They can be nuanced. There can be shades of gray. It can be both. Yes. You, the book is littered with film references, Mm -hmm. noir films, Hitchcock films. There's dozens of them. 
Is it your intention or do you hope that readers will go through and go and watch those films? Because actually there are really amazing cues in the book that you lay down from scenes that Anna yep. happens to be watching. And it was only upon reading it again that I picked up a whole nother layer, which begs the question, which I do have a question. Yeah, no, yeah. Do you think that you can read crime fiction, in a book again? Like if you know who did it, is it still satisfying to read it again? You know, to yeah. read it again because, yeah, a book like yours is very nuanced. I hope so. It grows in the second reading. Oh, how, so how how does that work? So, most crime fiction, in my experience, and again, I speak as someone who's read it his whole life and made it his career and his scholarship, is basically a crossword puzzle. You read it, you're diverted by it, you dispose of it, you forget about it, and that's fine. That's the definition of airplane reading, and mm. we need that sort of material. But on occasion, not, not always and not even often, but sometimes you can experience a crime novel on at least two levels. You can savor the twists and turns of the story, the reversals and the about faces, enjoy the clues. Scratch the surface, though, and you're exposed to a deeper or more resonant experience. Mm -hmm. I think Gone Girl is a good example of this. Mm -hmm. Some people despise that novel. I happen to love it. I think it's undeniably technically accomplished. It's fiendishly well-plotted, and it packs a killer twist in the middle. It's also a book with very provocative, even controversial ideas about women, men, the way men taxonomize and reduce women, about misogyny, about matrimony. That's a book that continues to haunt me six years after I read it, and I've reread it twice since. I know what happens in it. I know that twist. I know how it ends. The book still gratifies and rewards. I could say the same of the novels of Denise Mina and Tana French and Kate Atkinson. These are books that stand up to repeat viewings. It frustrates me when some readers suggest, as they have done, that if a book surprises you, it is a success. Mm. And if it does not, it is adjudged a failure. That seems to me quite reductive, although it's probably fair to say that of many books that are designed solely to surprise. But this novel was not written as a jack-in-the-box. No. I'd like to think that even if you can anticipate its twists and turns, some or all of them, you can still find it a rewarding read, mm. a substantive read. Regarding those twists and turns, and I'm going to vehemently avoid spoilers, mm. but from a technical point of view, how do you know when you've got a twist or a turn like that right? Is it a visceral, physical reaction? You know, because when you read it, there are a couple of moments where the hairs go up on the back of your neck and you're mm. like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> As a writer, mm -hmm. plotting that arc, how do you know you've got it right? And do you second guess that? How do you know those those little turns are the right ones, when they affect so largely yes. the bigger narrative. Sure, you know? these are like twists in a roller coaster. The architecture yeah, depends on them. They have huge yes. impact. They alter the trajectory yeah. of the story. Entirely, and make you rethink everything that you've read before then. Yep. I suppose to some extent it is sort of a spidey sense when the hairs <laughs> on the back of my own neck stand up. I outline aggressively and assertively before tapping out a single word. A lot of authors talk about their characters surprising them. If my characters surprise me, it means my medication isn't working. So, uh, I do not wish to be ambushed by my characters. That's such a good question. I will say this, my, my second novel, and I'm currently writing it, mm -hmm. concludes with a big twist. And I thought of the twist first, actually. That's what inspired the rest of the book. I sort of reverse engineered it. Yeah. And 
So I suppose if I'm taken aback by something, by virtue of having read so much over the years and having been exposed to so many reveals and twists, then that's probably, that probably bodes well. It's legitimate. I think so. Yeah, I hope you've so. You've been surprised by, a, yes. by an idea. Although I am notoriously bad at guessing who done it. It's, <laughs> it's pathetic. I, I, I was saying to my mother that I usually can't even identify, like, the victim. <laughs> I'll pick up a copy of, uh, yeah, I'll say to myself, like, I wonder who dies. And, and the book is Agatha Christie's Lord Edward Dies. It's, <laughs> it's sad, yeah. You're a really big fan of Nia Marsh, aren't I'm a you? huge Nia Marsh Which is part fan. of how we managed to get you down yep. this end of the world. Yes. And she d is amazing with whodunits, like her Inspector Allen yep. books. They are so rich with that kind of unravelling if you're looking for clues and still hopeless, no idea. They're masterfully plotted. Yeah. What I also like about them is how Nia Marsh managed to incorporate, incorporate other and diverse interests, particularly her love of theater, mm. which is evident time and time again in her books. It's kind of a leitmotif. It's refreshing to read a novel about characters who are not confined within the story. Mm -hmm. So often in this genre, you get the sense that the characters would not exist outside the confines of their story. Roderick Allen has interests. He's got hobbies. He's got habits. Mm. And so even if you're not particularly engrossed by her narratives, although I almost always am, you can still enjoy the company of the character. Do you think that you can say the same about Anna Fox? I hope so. I think she's pretty good fun, actually. Yeah. And she, too, has hobbies. She, too, has habits. She plays chess better than I do. She speaks French worse than I do. She can drink a glass of wine. Better than I can, yes. <laughs> better than anyone better here, Better than probably. anyone here, yeah. <laughs> Why do you think, and I think you are the expert to ask about this, why do you think that psychological thrillers and crime noir fiction endure in the way that they do. Why do you think readers want to feel that tension and that release? What is that, you know, from a human psychology point of view? Mm -hmm. why, why do we ache for that? Why do we reach for that? So I'm going to give you a pretty academic answer to start yes, with. Yes, do it. Then I'll segue. So as I argued in my dissertation, crime fiction, since its inception in the 19th century, has been a form of moral education and reassurance. We know at the beginning of a Sherlock Holmes story or an Agatha Christie novel or a Paul Cleave or Lee Child thriller, and they're two of the best, that by the end, the virtuous will have been rewarded mm -hmm. or redeemed, the guilty punished or prosecuted, and order and justice upheld or restored. Not always, but most of the time. And we find this comforting because in the real world, of course, order and justice are routinely unserved. So that explains the enduring appeal of crime fiction. I think psychological suspense speaks to a particular type of unease that we register acutely in the 21st century. Serial killer thrillers, to my mind, often verge on fantasy because most of us are not going to come into close contact with a serial killer in our lifetimes. This isn't to say a serial killer thriller can't be done artfully or persuasively, Thomas Harris being an excellent example of this. But sometimes they go over the top. And because they're not necessarily relatable, there's a divide. We don't experience them as intimately as we do a psychological thriller. You might not come into contact with a cannibal homicidal maniac, but you probably know what it's like to register unease about a spouse or a friend or a loved one. So the psychological thriller speaks to that unease. More particularly, 80% of the fiction readership in the English language market is female. And I find that the writers whom I generally admire most in this genre and indeed others are female. I suspect this is to some extent because women on a daily basis are exposed to pressures, pressures and prejudices and even dangers that I as a man 
cannot contemplate. And far from grinding them down, this builds them up. This makes them tougher. I think female writers are, for that reason, possibly better equipped to access the dark side, to explore it. Huh, that's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that's really very nice to hear you say that, actually. Oh, good. There's the particular tenacity of the female sex, perhaps. How they managed, how women managed to go out every day knowing that they could be catcalled or assaulted blows my mind. And for them to channel that paranoia or unease into their writing is, is, is quite a gift for them to bestow upon a readership, in my view. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here because I'm just interested in what you think of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw Hannah Gadsby's uh, Netflix, Nanette. Loved it. She says something very interesting. This is a stand-up comedian in Australian about um, what a joke is mm -hmm. and how it is a joke is set up, you know, it's the release of tension. Yes. So you set up the tension before the end of a gag and then it is the release that makes people laugh. Yes. And I, I wondered if you can relate that to to writing in this style, in this genre, if it's the same thing that we crave the release, that flood of relaxation after the tension is so high? Yes. Yeah, I, th I think you put it perfectly. I mean, it's obviously the opposite end of the scale of comedy, but it is the same mechanism. The mechanics, exactly. Yeah. The mechanism is the same. One review of my book, and I generally don't read my own press, but one early review I did read said, Finn knows how to pleasurably wind us up. And I was, <laughs> I was thinking about that expression, wind us up, and I realized, I, I likened it to a term I used earlier, jack-in-the-box. The winding builds the anticipation. It's like a roller coaster mounting that first bend. And then when you drop, there is that rush, there is that release. So... It's addictive. I, I, yes, absolutely. I think that's... I'm going to steal that. That's really good. Yeah, <laughs> the, Hannah, the Hannah Gadsby comp. I like that very much. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it, I guess. Um, how difficult was it for you to access a woman's psyche, speaking of, you know, women and their tenacity and mm -hmm. their courage. How, I mean, I'm, I take it that you're very close to the women in your own life. I am. So can yes. you talk a little bit about accessing women in that way and accessing women from a psychological point of view from your own upbringing? Sure. Do you know, it wasn't as challenging as I might have anticipated it being, in part because I think sometimes the distinctions between men and women are perhaps overpronounced. I don't know how a woman thinks. And there was an article, I, I say I don't read my press, clearly I do. There was an article in a British paper that said, uh, meet A.J. Finn, the man who thinks like a woman. I never said that. I wouldn't say that. I don't know how women think, but equally I don't know how other men think. I know how I think. I was raised, as I think everyone should be, with a healthy respect for women. And this is the reason I sought to create a female character. In part, I should add, because I knew I would be exploring some issues of personal relevance, mm. and I did not wish to confuse myself with the character. I didn't want us to blur together. I was mm. writing a novel, not a memoir. But the character, I felt, had to be a woman. It made a nice parallel. This is a character who suffers from mental illness, and people with mental illness are routinely dismissed or dissuaded or discouraged. Who else is routinely dismissed or dissuaded or discouraged? Women. We see this all the time. So it seemed to complement one of the central themes of the book. Excellent. Making women architects of their own destiny and making them active, not passive, fighting back. How do the women in your life feel about Anna, the character that you've created, and how have they reflected back to you? 
Mother? Yes. That's such a maternal response. Sorry, it's probably ridiculous, but I'm just curious. No, 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 it's, know, it's, it's, it's uh, Because men, so I think men so often write for women. Yes. But, and we don't really, no one really talks about it very much, but when a woman writes a, a book, the, the narrative point of view as a man, everyone goes, oh, well, she wrote, she wrote a man very well. But, yep. you know, the, no one really talks about men writing for women all the time, and this is mm -hmm. such a, to me, such a pointed example of that. You've oh. really gone... Gone Went for it, yes. Yeah. I think more men should write as women. I, I read some data that indicated that women write from male perspectives far more often than men write from female perspectives, which does not surprise me. Right. Men are much more exponentially more likely to enjoy review coverage and often favorable review coverage than women are. In the literary sphere, they are much more likely to attain bestseller status. I think the least men can do is adopt a female perspective every once in a while. One of the things that my sisters said to me was that they were pleased to see the sex object in The Woman in the Window, which is not a particularly sexy book, was a man. It's not a woman. Yeah. The women are not sexualized in this book at all. And very few of the characters are. The one who is, is a guy. Yeah. So I, I do consider this quite a, dare I say it, a feminist book. I was going to ask you, and I'm proud of that. You that perhaps you might be unwittingly a bit of a feminist icon in that respect. You I definitely would... passed that. It's the Bechtel test, oh, isn't it? the Bechtel test. Bechtel, where, where, yeah, no one talks about dating, relationships. I wonder if that guy likes me. It just yep. doesn't happen. Not in the, because I... Thank God. The women I know, I mean, my mother is married, so she shouldn't talk about dating. But, you know, <laughs> most of the women I know are not like that. It drives me crazy to see them represented otherwise in fiction. Yeah. I... I've got about five more minutes before we open the floor to questions. And um, obviously, I really want to ask you about the film oh, yeah. adaptation sure. of The Woman in the Window. Because am I right? The rights were sold before the book was even published. Yes. This is a fun story. I really like this. So the book was submitted in September 2016 to publishers. And I happened to be going off to Palm Springs in California on a holiday. And I was in Newark Airport about to board my flight when my agent rang and said, great news, we've got an offer for the publishing rights, so stay tuned. And by the time I'd landed five hours later, my phone was blowing up. So I got to spend that whole week slouched in a hot tub in Palm Springs, tippling margaritas and snarling at small children. I felt really <laughs> important as I spoke to editors on the phone. We didn't close any publishing deals because auctions were hotting up. And by the time I returned, we still hadn't done this, but uh, I was in LAX on the way back and my agent rang again. And the lesson here is I should spend more time in airport lounges because... <laughs> Good things happen. Absolutely. And she says, well, uh, we haven't actually submitted the novel to Hollywood. We wanted to wait until we'd closed a publishing deal, but Fox got their hands on it, and they tendered what they call an exploding offer. And I said, <laughs> you know, that sounds dangerous but sexy. What does that mean? <laughs> and she said, it means I've got them on the other line, and you have to say yes or no to their offer right now. You say yes, we go with them. You say no, we take our chances elsewhere. Are you ready? And I said somewhat apprehensively, yes. What's the offer? And she said, it's a million dollars. Do you want it? <laughs> so after accepting, I wanted to tell someone, but there was no one in the terminal with me except for this lovely Japanese family. There was a, there was a mother and a father and a four-year-old child, and I hadn't heard them speaking English, and I don't speak Japanese. So I just turned to them, and I smiled, and I gave them a double thumbs up. And bless them, every single one of them, including the kid, did the same thing back to me. <laughs> it was really sweet. They never call, they never write, but it was a, it was a lovely moment. <laughs> so the film has steamrolled into production. The last yeah. four movies to go from page to screen this quickly were Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, 
Gone Girl, Fifty Shades, and Girl on the Train. Mm. So that's good company to be in. The movie stars Amy Adams, as mm. you said, and Julianne Moore and Gary Oldman. And it's directed by Joe Wright, who made Darkest Hour and Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. The screenwriter has a Pulitzer. I don't. So Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts, who August wrote August Osage County. County. Exactly. And the producer, Scott Rudin, won an Oscar for No Country for Old Men and made The Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Grand Budapest Hotel. Wow. Zoolander 2. Wow. <laughs> you can't win them all no, is the can't. lesson there. And I would like a cameo in the film because Hitchcock always contributed always. cameos. Always. Just walk, yep. just walk down the street. But as you know, because the action takes place between four walls, yeah, yeah, the opportunities are limited. There is a scene set in a cafe, and I thought I could be like in the background stirring a latte, but I know myself, and I would like... Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly yeah. what I, I would wave oh. to my mother. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's probably best I, I don't participate. Do you know, have you um, had anything to do with the adaptation? Have you looked at it? Have you seen what Tracy Letts is doing with it? I read the first draft of the script, which was very good. It's yep. since undergone many, many iterations mm -hmm. and mutations. I've tried to keep out, even though Fox have been tremendously accommodating and involving towards me. They've flown their executives out to New York repeatedly to meet with me. They've flown me out to LA repeatedly to meet with them. Wow. I did get to visit the set a couple of weeks ago, and I met Amy. <sighs> I know, I, I say this as though we're pals. And when I get back, I'll go to meet Julianne and, and Gary. Oh, God. J-Dog and G-Slice, as I'll call them. <laughs> and touring the sets was quite an experience. What was the house like? It looked exactly, they built this on a soundstage, but because the soundstage is only so tall and it's a giant soundstage, yeah. they have built the floors of the house up horizontally rather yeah. than vertically, so as to maneuver cameras so room in and by out. Room by exactly, room. yes. And it looked just as I pictured, only slightly heightened, a bit more gothic. It was absolutely extraordinary. And I did get to watch Amy Adams shoot a scene in which she said, this is Anna Fox, I'm Anna Fox. And I thought, ah, I made you. Yeah. It, it, was, yeah, it was quite you were surreal. You walking, talking, moving around. Uh -huh. I made, yeah. yeah, that's me. Little God moment there. It was, I did have a God moment. <laughs> and I, I worry that this is going to go to my head and I'll start referring to people as peasants. But, uh, <laughs> Do you, is there, um, in the handover of passing over your book to other people to yes. bring to life, I mean, adaptation is a tricky thing, isn't it? When it works, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. When it doesn't, like Joe Wright's Atonement, fantastic adaptation. Yep. Are you worried about what might be lost in translation? Not particularly, for two reasons. One, there's the caliber of the talent involved, and I'm curious to see their vision. I would mm. not want to see a literal translation of the book on the screen. I think that's redundant. But secondly, and I don't mean to sound cynical here, having worked in publishing for 10 years, I recognize that whilst books can be works of art, they are also commercial units. And I would never advise a publisher to cater to as small an audience as possible. You mm -hmm. want people to read your book. That's what keeps the industry afloat. Mm -hmm. Same thing with films. I want them to make a movie that a large mass audience can enjoy. And if that means streamlining or improving upon the book, go for it. Excellent. Um, I think that's probably a really good place to leave it there sure. because um, we've got some time now for questions. Um, we've got some roving mics moving through the auditorium. So if you want to raise your hand, if you've got questions, now would be, there's a lady just here. Kia ora. Welcome to New Zealand, Dan. Thank you so much. Um, I'm interested in the writing process yes. and you talked about outlining um, and you're meticulous with that. Did you ever run into any dead ends and what did you do to get around those dead ends? Question. That's an excellent mm. question. I do run into dead ends routinely when outlining, particularly with the second book. I say routinely, I've outlined all of two books, but particularly with the second book. What helps me out, what bails me out in every single instance is to read the work of a writer whom I admire, 
I often turn to Tana French, who's an excellent Irish-American author, or Kate Atkinson, or Gillian Flynn, or other authors whom I've named earlier in this conversation, to see how they would resolve or solve a particular dilemma. I get a lot of mileage out of words, as I mentioned to the lady who kindly praised my speech just now. <laughs> I remember reading a passage from Tana French's book, In the Woods, in which she described light jinking off a river, and I thought I'd never heard that word before, but I love it. It's chewy, it's evocative, and I, I was stuck at a particular plot point in, in the outline, and so I crammed the word jink in there, and I thought, what does light jink off of? Oh, a mirror. And just like that, the problem was resolved. A mirror swooped in and saved the day. So that's how I find resolution with a lot of my difficulties, by turning to people who write better than I do. My process is Adderall. <laughs> that's a, that's a, it's like Ritalin, yeah. No, my, my process is not particularly inspired. I listen to electronic music and I fuel myself with English breakfast tea. I used to fuel myself with Diet Coke, but then I learned that Trump drinks a lot of it, so I stopped. <laughs> that was my form of protest. It's tough for me to develop a routine because I travel so much. Since January 1st, I've been on the road all but 49 days this year. So I've had to learn to write on planes and in interviews. I've been writing this whole time, actually. <laughs> so I haven't yet really evolved a routine, but I hope to. Um, there, oh, there's a question up back. Hello. Oh, you've got a mic Hello. already. Oh, Very it's, good. it's Paul Cleave. It's Paul Cleave. Uh, Dan, nice yes, to sir. see you again. You too. Um, I have a, uh, a question. Um, this is a bit loud. Um, so you're saying that, you know, you often hear people say that a book, it was the right book for that time, you know, yep. in that moment. Okay, so you're saying Gone Girl is, was sort of changed, you know, the, the tone of, of where things were going. Mm -hmm. If AJ had walked into Dan's office, say, in 2000 and pitched this idea to him, what would have Dan said? Ooh. Yeah, given that the market wasn't where it is now. That's a, that's a good question. I think I would have sparked to it in principle, because this is the sort of book I like to read. I was listening to Denise Mina in here earlier today, and she said that in writing her first novel, she sought to turn out something that she would herself enjoy reading. And that might well be how you started as well. I think a lot of writers get, get their start writing for themselves. I might, though, have had doubts about its saleability or market profile in a market that seemed to reward serial killer thrillers. I like serial killer thrillers a lot, and I'm glad that they continue to enjoy Time in the Sun. That's a genre that is never going to ebb. But given their primacy at that time, I would have had doubts about the commercial potential of a book like this. One of the fun aspects of publishing, though, is never knowing where lightning will next strike. Who would have anticipated, for example, that a rather talky political thriller featuring a goth chick would have become a worldwide sensation, but the girl with a dragon tattoo did? Who would have thought that unreadable erotica would have become a global sensation? <laughs> I'm not a fan of that book, just to make it crystal clear. Uh. <laughs> would have become a sensation, and yet it did. It's funny that you keep bringing that book up. I. I <laughs> What does that say about me? I think we know. I think you do. <laughs> Guest lady in here. I just wanted to ask you something about 
writing the book, how I choose the name, oh, the name of my character. Yes. And I'm just wondering, um, like Fox, you know, do they live in dark places? I'm not sure about foxes. How do you choose the name of your characters and how did, yeah. So this is where I'm going to sound quite cynical. Towards the end of this project, as I was writing it, my agent started to get quite excited about it and said, I think we've got a real shot at selling this internationally. And I thought to myself, I want to make sure I select names that anyone can pronounce. And it is difficult for anyone, no matter where you're from, to mispronounce Anna Fox. And that's why the other characters in the novel all have fairly simple, straightforward phonetic names. David, Ethan, Jane. A.J. Finn was chosen as an homage, actually, to my cousin A.J., Alice Jane is her real name, and to my other cousin's French bulldog, Finn. <laughs> I love French bulldogs. They're the most popular breed in New York City because they are portable and they don't bark and exercise literally kills them. <laughs> so I wanted to appeal to readers. There's, there's nothing worse if you ask me, and I speak as both an author and a publisher, than not knowing how to pronounce a character's name or an author's name. Mm -hmm. It's kind of embarrassing to walk into a bookshop and to ask a bookseller, do you have the new, I'm not sure how to say it. So I wanted to keep things intelligible for readers. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, based on the success of your first novel, uh -huh. where, where do you go from here? Is there enormous pressure while you're putting the second novel together? Well, now there is. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to run away and retire. <laughs> Happily for me, I came up with the idea for the second book before we submitted the first novel to publishers, so I already liked it before there was pressure to like it. But you can check in with me when it's time to write the third one. I've been lucky enough to field overtures from Hollywood, but I'm resisting their siren song for now. I do not want to be one of those authors who, having had the good fortune to author a particularly successful book, disappears into the Hollywood wilderness. I did go out to LA to take meetings, as they say in that industry, back in the spring. And to the next author lucky enough to have happened to them what's happened to me, I would say keep your ego in check by going out to Hollywood and taking meetings. They don't much care. So I'm going to stick with my book every two years strategy and hope that I deliver. Can you tell us a little bit about what your new book is I about? Can. The new book is another psychological thriller. This one's set in San Francisco. And just as the first mm -hmm. book was heavily influenced by classic cinema, this new book is heavily influenced by classic detective fiction by the likes of Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. And indeed, one of the central characters is a crime writer himself. Excellent. Mm. Who, was there more questions on there? In there? Oh. Thank you. Uh, my husband gave me my book for my birthday, and he kept saying, he goes, how do you like it? How do you like it? And I was like, ah, oh, it's so frustrating. She won't get out of the house. But um, <laughs> She has her reasons. I know. I was just like, oh. I hated it, and I put it away, and then I bring back it. And so we, we had this love-hate relationship with your book, but I was like, I'm getting out of the house today. But, so thank you. But authors normally do something crazy, like once they've finished the book and they've written the last chapter and they, I don't know, send it off to your publisher, mm -hmm. you guys normally do something crazy or different or, I don't know, drink a lot of red wine. or uh, What did you do when you finished this book? Did you do anything to weird and celebrational or, you know? I didn't simply because I'd never written a book before or submitted a book to publishers. I felt quite anxious about it. So uh, having submitted the completed manuscript to my agent, I sort of twiddled my thumbs and awaited the submission process. After the book was acquired quite widely, and I've now got 
publishers in 43 territories, I sought to celebrate by buying myself a new flat and a French bulldog, but neither has happened yet. So <laughs> I haven't gone berserk, but there's always tonight. <laughs> Oh, that's a, a new dog after each book was the suggestion. I quite like that, actually. Remember, I live in a tiny, tiny flat. Uh, th that's fine. Yes, a chihuahua is a good idea. <laughs> Are there more? Are there more questions? Oh. Just in the middle here. We're looking at publishing the next one, I think, in March 2020. That's the hope. That's the plan. That'll happen. Um, when and how did you know you wanted to work in that industry? I knew I wanted to work in publishing after I determined that I did not wish to go into academia. I read English as an undergraduate and then went to do my master's. I concluded within four hours of beginning my studies that academia was not for me. But like many students who study English, I didn't feel qualified to do anything else. So I finished my master's, went into publishing, returned to Oxford for my PhD studies, went back into publishing. So it was quite young. Many young people in publishing, are you thinking of going into it yourself? Yeah, a little bit. It's a, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, um, yeah, I'm sort of thinking about it at the moment. <laughs> it's a sensible option for a lot of reasons. It's not highly remunerative, at least not in the beginning, but few, few positions are. But it is an industry that quite rapidly allows you to make influential decisions. You will find yourself within the first couple of years acquiring books that will generate conversations. And those books might not have been brought to market if not for you. So for that reason, it's a, an industry I heartily recommend. And I miss it. I miss my colleagues. I miss the day-to-day -day thrill of determining what's going to work and what might not work. And were I not an author, I would remain happily employed in that industry. Cool, thank you. You're welcome. Um, we've got time for one more question before we have to wrap up the session. Anybody? No, um, in that case, I've yeah. got a question. Oh, yes, please go for um, it. <laughs> your, um, when you submitted your manuscript, yes. I just want to know about any feedback or how much the novel changed when it was accepted. Yep. What criticisms did you get and what was tweaked? Not a lot was, was changed, oh. in part because my agent is herself an excellent editor. So after submitting it to her, she revised it for a couple of weeks and then it was off to the races. But also, I write sequentially, and this book is chopped up into 100 bite-sized chapters. I wrote chapter one toggled into editor mode, refined it, made suggestions to myself, toggled back into writer mode, accepted those suggestions, <laughs> revised and refined. This is, this is clearly incipient multiple personality disorder. <laughs> refined and revised the chapter accordingly, and then moved on to the next one without revisiting the first. So that by the time I finished chapter 100, the manuscript was in pretty pristine shape and hews very closely to what was ultimately published. One significant note that my editor did give me was that the character who has a drinking problem was quaffing everything from Merlot to vodka to like lighter fluid. She would drink anything with an alcohol content. And my editor said, you've got to stick with one vintage. So we chose Merlot. Huh. And we chose Merlot because no one likes it. <laughs> so true. Yes, it's disgusting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, 
The, that concludes our session today. The Woman in the Window is available for purchase at the UBS Bookshop, and AJ Finn will be signing outside immediately after this session. Um, so please do go and say hello to him, and if you haven't bought the book, you really should. It's a cracker. Um, would you please uh, join me in thanking AJ very much? Thank you. Thank you. Were you. Excellent. Oh. So good. So good. Yeah. You're allowed to leave now.